Bible tonight. We're in the third chapter of Revelation. We're looking at the last church in Revelation chapter 3. And uh, I want to thank Bill for doing Bible study for me last week. I know it's a job he always looks forward to. Always requests to do that. No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding, but I really do appreciate that uh, a lot. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, this is probably the church that you hear the most about. It's a church that for years uh, pastors have preached against the warning of churches uh, losing their way. Uh, but I can tell you, this has been the biggest struggle for me preparing for chapter 3. Uh, I have spent tons of time studying chapter 4 and the chapters ahead in regards to the tribulation and the rapture and and all of those things. But what makes chapter 3, verses 14 through 23, so difficult is that there are really two ways that you view it. And you look at those pictures there, and those are pictures of, of uh, what it looks like today, some of the ruins and uh, different things that are there in the city of Laodicea. But there are two views on this church. The first is that this is a group of unsaved people. Uh, they have never experienced salvation, that they have uh, just enough knowledge about God to outwardly look like a believer, but yet have never truly been saved. The second view that this chapter is looked at is that they are saved people, but yet they are off track. That they have genuinely wandered, but yet are still the church. And you say, Jake, what does that matter? Because as you read through this, you have to make that decision. Is the Lord talking to His church to save people? Or is He talking to lost people that are acting like they are saved? You say, well, Jake, it's easy. You can read through it and find out. No, it actually isn't. Because if you read through the Greek and the language and the verbiage and, and different things, it's not. It's very challenging. And you say, Jake, which do you believe? I don't know. As I told Brzezinski today, as I was locking my keys in the car on the way to Evansville, and he patiently waited for me while the Carmine police came and saved ourselves, um, I don't know. Uh, if I would have started six months ago before I started the study of Revelation, I would have went with I'm in the second category. I, I think that it's a, a great warning to how believers can can begin to drift and to go into a place of lukewarmness. Uh, the more I study, I, sometimes I fall the other direction and know that these are, this church is, a, is a not a, a real true church. It is a pretend church. Uh, these are not safe people, but they can't be. And so, but I go back and forth. But how you believe will affect how you read things as we go through it, especially in the end of this section. Because you'll have to ask yourself questions of, is the Lord wanting fellowship with His church? Is He wanting to reach this group of people who are acting like the church? And so I do not know all the answers. I don't even know all of them myself. But what I can tell you is this, that this is written, and so many times it is a message of judgment. Right? It's a message that the Lord will vomit you out of your mouth. That's the verse that everybody wants to look at. And it absolutely means that, that he will vomit them out. But what we forget in this passage of Scripture is that it's not just a message of condemnation. It is a message that it doesn't have to stay this way. Right? You don't have to imitate these false things. You don't have to fake this relationship with the Lord. You can really be his church. You can really be his people. And we're going to look at that as we go through that because I want you to hear that. That whether it is written to a church that is truly His but has wandered, they can return. Or if it is a group of people who have never truly experienced Him, they can be saved. And so while it is a message of, 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 of great seriousness, it also should be reminding us of a message of hope. That the Lord is long-suffering. That His mercies are anew. And so I just want you to read that because it's very easy to get into this mindset of, of judgment, of condemnation, and forget that God is writing this to them uh, to get their attention. 
to deal with them and for this to be used to change them into who he wants them to be. And that's important as we remember ourselves in the church today. The Lord does have a purpose and plan for us. That even when we stumble, even when we fall, even if we, we, we join the church for the wrong reasons, and that the Lord is at work, and the Lord will work if we'll let him. And so we're just going to go through it, and we're going to look at it and talk about it. And you say, Jake, I might leave as confused as you are. That is possible. That is very, very possible. But I just want to jump in and read the text, and we'll pray and go from there. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold, cold nor hot, excuse me. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, having become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we all know that you are the only source of truth. Lord, that none of us can understand all things and be correct at all times. But what we do pray, Lord, is that you would give us humility to study your word, to allow it to deal with us and to convict us and to encourage us. Father, tonight I pray that you'd forgive me. Lord, if you do not work through the words that I say, nothing will be done. Lord, if your spirit is not at work, nothing will be accomplished. But Lord, I pray that through the teaching of your word, you would continually to make this group of people into the church that you want it to be. Lord, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, uh, uh, if you look on there, we have some fill in the blanks. If you don't want to listen and want to fill it in and check out, the answers are on the back page as always. I was watching the church at uh, Bellevue Baptist Church and Steve Gaines began his sermon by saying, some of you are upset that there are no empty lines in your sermon notes to fill out. Some lady went, amen. And he goes, it's because when you fill that last line in, I watch you put your notes in your Bible and your Bible close. And he says, I might have 30 more minutes of a good sermon left in me. So no more empty lines. You'll just get the notes and you can listen. But that's not how it is here. But the first thing I want to show you, those these three big things that we don't get caught down in the weeds, is the focus is on who Jesus is. The focus is on who Jesus is. When we start in verse 15, in verse 14 it says, And to the church of the church, angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And this has caused a lot of problems with people. This verse has been used by many cults to start offshoots of what real Christianity is. But what is going on here is that the Lord is wanting this church to know who he is. Because if you and I do not get who Jesus is correctly, then we are not truly his. We can disagree over a lot of things in the book of Revelation. We can disagree on a lot of things in the other parts of Scripture. But if you and I do not truly understand who Jesus is, we cannot be a part of the family of God. That is why churches like the Mormon Church, the Latter-day Saints, uh, some of those churches are so close 
in what they believe to what we do, on things like being pro-life and on being things like this. But when it comes to the issue of Jesus, where they begin to waver is that he was the firstborn of creation, that he was created by the Father, that he has not always existed. Some believe that Satan and Jesus are brothers, that he was either fully God or fully man, but yet you cannot have both. And so when you and I begin to get into those areas, we are no longer different groups within Christianity. We are either believers or we are not. And so these three things that he talks about himself here is the first there, he says, the amen. And most Bible commentators believe this is a reference to Isaiah 65, verse 16. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten. And because they are hidden from his eyes. This word for amen means truth. And what he's saying here is that this message is going to be one of rebuke. And they need to be reminded that he is truth. Your opinion is not true. My opinion is not true. My feelings are not true. Your feelings are not true. All truth is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. And we know that through the teaching of his word. And so when we base what we believe about Jesus and why this is believed is because uh, when Paul writes to uh, some other churches in the New Testament, he's talking about this issue about Christ and who Christ is. And it is actually located very church uh, close to this church. And so what many Bible commentators believe is that that belief that Jesus was not what we believe had seeped into the church. And he was just right off the bat saying, listen, if you are going to be a real believer, if you are going to be a real church, you cannot get it wrong about who Jesus is. And so he says, I am truth. And we'll just look at these three very quickly and then we'll talk about it. He goes on and says, the faithful and true witness. The faithful and true witness. What he's saying here is that Jesus is the faithful one. He is the one that was talked about in the Old Testament. He was the coming king, the coming Messiah. He was the uh, descendant of David. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says it like this. For all the promises of God in him are yes. And in him, amen. To the glory of God through us. That doesn't mean that you get whatever you want in the answer of yes when you ask God. But all of the promises of God are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the reason that we can be forgiven of our sins. He is the reason that we will be resurrected from the dead. He is the reason that we can have the hope that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He is the one. He, and it goes on and it's just giving us this idea that he is faithful, he is the true witness. Because there when it goes into the beginning of the creation of God, uh, we need to be very careful here. Because you say, well, this word for beginning, it means the start of something. It means that, that it was created. No, it's not what it's saying. It's talking about being the preeminence. That it is being the focal point. And John writes that in John chapter 1 to us, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So John tells us abundantly clear, you either have to deny that Jesus is God, or you have to accept it. You, you cannot mix it in any way. Because he goes on and says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And don't miss this. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that he is the first. He is God. He has always been. You say, Jake, explain the Trinity. I am not wading into that discussion tonight. All right. There's plenty of sermons on that. 
But you and I have to understand who Jesus is. It's what separates us from every other world religion. Jesus was not just a prophet. He wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a miracle worker. No, he was God in the flesh. He became the lamb that was slain for us. And when you and I have any doubt about that, or we begin to try to talk to people who disagree with us about that, there is no compromise. And I believe that why this church is being addressed in the name that they are, like many Bible commentators, is because this is what they got wrong. They began to waver in who Jesus was. They allowed things to come into the church that taught them that he was somewhere other than he says he is. And so the very first thing is, he was establishing the deity of Christ. Departing from this truth keeps you from being the part of a true church of Jesus Christ. And so that is why many commentators say that what we're beginning to look at in this section is a group of people that are not saved, that are acting saved, not a group of saved people that have grown cold. Thoughts, questions, discussions? But, but even if that is the case, it was important enough for Jesus to address that. Absolutely. You know, and, and what, you know, where we're going here next, it's almost a parable about their daily life, what was in their culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is why I find so special about this, because even though he does talk about vomiting them out of his own mouth, when he begins to teach them in these next few verses, was taught with the understanding that they would understand what he's talking about. He was relating to their everyday situations, the things about their city. And so the second thing I want to show you here is the purpose, the purpose is them understanding the truth. Jesus did not give this to them to confuse them or to keep this from them. Everything he teaches them here is for them to understand and relate. And so it starts in verse 15 and says, I know your works. He teaches us this very same truth that the Bible teaches us, that God knows everything. He knows everything about us, the good, the bad, the highs, the lows, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Spewing, vomiting. You can project it. You can think of it. That's what it talks about. And so what he's writing here is that this, what is going to be described, is sickening to God. That he does not approve of it. That he will not tolerate it. And that this is the response that is going to happen. And this is important because when you and I look at this, it should be reminding of us. And I want to read these notes to you specifically because I don't want to mess this up. This has been something that I thought was very, very uh, important. This city, when talking about vomiting and hot and cold, was crucial to this city. There were some local streams in the area, but as the population grew and developed, the local streams and rivers were inadequate. In fact, some of them dried up in the winter, and so water had to be brought in. Well, the only way to bring in water was an underground aqueduct. And being very enterprising, they managed to build an aqueduct, and the water flowed down the aqueduct into the city of Laodicea. And so what we know is, though, that the cities around Laodicea, some of them had hot springs, some of them had uh, cold water, but yet the city of Laodicea struggled with water and quality water. And so it is giving them this idea that they understand this, right? It's not real good. You drink cold tea or you drink hot tea, but most people don't like lukewarm tea, right? You like cold coffee or you like hot coffee, but you usually don't like lukewarm coffee. And so he's giving them this idea of the water quality and the taste of this water could make them sick. 
And he is giving this to them because water is a big deal. How, how long does anybody know if I'm not smart? How long can you live without water? Three days. Okay, the, we're, the smart people are spanning three days, so that's what we're going with. So it's an important thing. It, it is a major issue. And so he begins to talk about that here. And John MacArthur makes a really uh, interesting statement here. That he says, not only could the water make you sick, but in the case of the water sources around them, uh, there were uh, water that were heavy in metals. Uh, they were heavy in impurities. And so not only did the water make them sick, it would clog up pipes. It would keep the water from getting to where it was necessary. And so this issue of water was always on the minds of the army and the people of Laodicea. Uh, if you've ever studied anything about Napoleon, or if you've ever stolen anything about a Nazi Germany, Germany and their march uh, west into Russia, uh, the Russian winter, I got both of them. A lack of supplies, a, a lack of preparedness. Uh, we know that Hitler never dreamed that it would drag out that far. And so the elements begin to impact them. And what he's saying here is that same thing. What is vital to you, this water that can sustain you, that can bring you life, that can make you sick, what you are doing is polluting. It's wrong. It's not the way it should be. You need to either reject Christ openly and honestly, or you need to accept him. But what you're doing here is neither of those. Now, what some people would say, well, so there's three classes of people, saved in the middle and lost. No, you were either saved or lost. There is no third category. But what we see here is Paul is using this to teach them. He's not just using this because I think the Bible should say somewhere that God wants to vomit someone else. No, Paul, uh, John is writing this because the Lord is leading him to teach them, to show them, to make them understand. And I think that is encouraging. All right, I've never heard this text preached encouraging, all right? But I'm going to do it for just a second. Can I, can I interject just a yeah. I, don't, I think it's still a two a twofold deal because you're either cold and good or hot and good. They were piping it in, like you said, from different areas. Mm -hmm. um, what I've always been told and taught, read that the hot was coming from a, a town close by town, Hierapolis, mm -hmm. and the cold was coming from Colossi. They both were useful. Absolutely. But yet, when they became lukewarm, then Absolutely. neither were useful and Absolutely. thus the Well, then you can also look at that as well. So well, some people will say, well, then it has to be the church. It has to be a group of saved people because it is there is good in it, mm -hmm. yet it's just become polluted. It's more, it's more being useful. You know, the hot and the cold were both useful. The lukewarm wasn't. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's you know, I would, you know, Jesus wouldn't encourage somebody to be cold towards him, you know. Absolutely. Like Absolutely. Other thoughts? So like I said, I think it is encouraging because the Lord doesn't just write this group of people off. Right? He is teaching them so that they will understand. He is relating with them so that they are listening. And that is encouraging to me because what like I baptism water. Huh? Kind of like baptism water. You want it cold, right? No, no, I want baptism water hot. No cold baptism for this guy. Please, if it's not working, we'll make it happen. All right, whatever it takes. But I say this because I want you to see this for just a moment here. Because there is so much in even in the church world, right? That that is so much, I think, that is unforgiving, that is unwelcoming that is, is, is limiting on how we respond to people when they fail, when they stumble, when they struggle, uh, when people wander. But the Bible yet says that, that it's a blessed thing when a brother that wanders is turned back. That we should not hold too much of a grudge against those who have fallen because that can be worse than the original offense. And so when we read through this, I just want us to see that, yes, the warning is there. And yes, it is significant. And yes, it is serious. But never forget 
that the Lord could have just said, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth and let's go on to chapter 4. <clears throat> but he doesn't. He doesn't. And so these things that he talks about here in this passage, he starts with the water. And if you see here, this is a teaching tree that they would have understood because of their location. Um, Dave was something about saying something about Navy showers earlier, and I said, so are Navy showers hot, cold? He goes, there's a lack of water. Quick. They're quick, right? Well, I don't know anything about Navy showers. Never been in the Navy. Yes, those two right there, though, can sit over there and Navy nerd out all they want, right? They can talk about stuff. They can, and I'm there going, I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't know anything about that. And so what they're taught is not going to be able to reconcile to me because I'm like, well, I don't understand any of that. I don't understand the radars. I don't understand any of that. And so they are speaking to themselves. But if you want to talk to me about something else that I understand, talk to me about why the water comes up in the viaduct and you shouldn't drive in there. And I can tell you, hey, I've seen people in that. And you want to ask, why do we have a viaduct? I don't know at this point in the game. But so I understand that. I, I've seen that. I've experienced that. And so it's relatable to me. And I think that is so encouraging that the Lord is still speaking to them, dealing with them in these areas that they understood. And so he started with the water, but he continues on. And he goes on and says, I know your works. We looked at that in verse 16. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. That word for wealth there was important to this city because it was one of the wealthiest cities in the ancient world. Uh, Roman historians tell us um, that, uh, I can't remember if it was 60 AD or 360 AD, I can't remember, but this city was destroyed by an earthquake. And when the Roman government offered to rebuild it, they said, we don't need your money, we have enough. And so to them, uh, the, this day and age, not what we're talking about, but even into early history, this town boasted about the fact that we were able to rebuild better than we were before. And we could do it on our own. And so they were very wealthy, very prideful. And what the Lord is talking here is you think you are spiritually wealthy. You think because you have material things, you were blessed. But he says... I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And then he tells them the true spiritual truth. And do not know you that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He says this is what you are looking at things at, but this is the true assessment. This is truly how I view you. And it's a warning. But it is one they would have understood because of their great wealth. Right? If you and I were to talk, if we were to go into the, into the desert of Africa to a little community that has just heard the gospel, there are very few believers, right? There are very few uh, people who know Christ and say, we're going to start a building fund here in your town. They're probably going to look at us and go, what? A building fund? For what? We have a house. We have a few believers. Let's just have church. No, no. We're going we're gonna to raise money for you to build a building. A great big building. To them, that would be, why? But for us, we understand that. We, we've all been in churches. We've seen building funds raised. We've seen it. We recently purchased uh, two motorcycles, I believe. Uh, not for me. Don't worry. I'm not, I have a motorcycle at home that I ride around courtesy of 10 Mile. Uh, and we sent that money and bought two motorcycles in Africa for Mustafa. Many of you know Mustafa. And there were 15 new pastors that were needing to reach their congregations and the churches that they planted. And so with those motorcycles can be used, one, to check on their flocks, but also to give taxi rides to people. And so it earns them an income. It gives them opportunities to share the gospel. And it allows them to reach people. Well, if you were to say we're going to take up a, a fund for Jake to have a motorcycle, some of you have to look and be like, wait a second. That don't sound right. I don't need a motorcycle. All right. I, you know, there's a certain weight limit you ought to stay off of. But that's, that's just my personal opinion. But that is what we're seeing here. He's speaking to their individual situation, to their individual need. And so while tonight you might find yourself very wealthy, 
or very poor, very spiritually wealthy or very spiritually poor. Do not let what others say about you become what defines you. What does the Lord say about you? What does the scriptures say about us? What does the scripture say about this church? Are we a biblical church? Are we a church that the community likes? It matters. Are we being faithful to the Lord? Are we being faithful to what we want? And so he just unfolds these truths. Now, I will just stop there for a second because we're just going to build on this. It's all about what was going on in the lives of the Laodiceans. All right, well, just, just follow along here. He goes on and goes, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. You say, well, Jake, you just told us they were wealthy. This is not a, a reference to their wealth, but Laodicea sat right on a trade route, not just a trade route that went east and west, but went north and south. And so this would have been a banking, financial center of the known world of this time. It would have been a place where you could have bought and sold and traded, and, and you would have had great financial power. I mean, you think of the New York Stock Exchange. You think of, of these great places to, to build wealth. And he's saying what you have been buying is not the real thing. What you have wanted is not the real thing. But he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. What he's talking about here is not the earthly gold that is stamped with a cross on it or something like that. But he's just telling them that if you want to be spiritually rich, you have to become bankrupt self. You have to come to him totally open and honest. There is nothing good in me. It's all him. And I think this is interesting just because if you have the um, uh, MacArthur Study Bible, um, like I do, and it talks about almost every verse in there. It doesn't talk about this one in verse 17. It talks about the vomiting. It talks about, uh, but it goes down into verse 18. Uh, when it talks about uh, the gold, it says this, excuse me. He was offering them the spiritual counterparts to their three major industries. Each way was a way to refer to genuine salvation. And so MacArthur holds to the view that this is a group of people that need salvation. They are not just a church that's went astray. They need salvation. And he's referring them to this. Others would say, no, the works that they are producing, what they have is not real. It's not going to be tested when the Lord judges everything. It will not last. It will burn up. That's why the Bible tells us to store our treasures in heaven where rust and moth cannot destroy. And so whichever view you hold about this passage of Scripture, it will just affect you a little bit either way. But either way, the focus is on we need the Lord. We need him to be producing the fruit in us. We need to be trusting in his riches and his honor and in his glory and not ours. Thoughts, questions? So what comes to mind is the story of the rich young ruler mm -hmm. that comes to Jesus. And you know, the same thing is going on in Laodicea. They're trying to be self-reliant. They want to rely on what they believe instead of realizing what they really need is Christ. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, and then at the end of that story, the rich young ruler, Jesus talks about that, that it's hard for a rich man to get rid of him. Absolutely. Because of that, you know, I'm a self-made man. Absolutely. Absolutely. So he goes on and he, he says, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may be revealed. Now, if you've read the Bible, you've read a lot about white robes and all of those things. And most of us would read that and say, well, what does this mean? I don't, what is the significance here? Well, in this city, the area of Laodicea was known for their wool industry. And it would turn their carpets and garments a shade of dark black and purple. Very valuable in the ancient world. They would not only sell it and trade it there in Laodicea, but yet they would ship it all over the Roman Empire. And what he says is, you're putting all of your faith in this purple and this black garments and all of this stuff that is beautiful, that it is valuable, 
but no earthly robes. It's not enough. You need to be forgiven. Like the old song says, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me white as snow? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so what he says here is either one, you need real salvation. You need to be made clean by me. Some Bible commentators that hold to the other view would say no. It's just showing that their works were not real. Their works were not going to endure. That they were doing these things that were an imitation, but they were not the real thing. And then the last thing that he says there in this section of Scripture here, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And you say, okay, I, I don't understand that. Well, 13 miles from the outskirts of Laodicea was a great medical school. It was a medical school that would have been associated with, and I can't pronounce the name of this pagan god, but it thinks it's Asclepius, the god of healing. And this city boasted on the fact that they could heal, not in the Benny, stint, Benny Hinn knock in the forehead kind of way, but all right, but in modern medicine of that day, all right? And some pagan worship too, okay? And what John says through the writing of this word that the Lord says to them is, you think you can cure the problems of this world. You think you can cure spiritual problems, but you can't. You cannot. You cannot do that. Only I can. And so he says, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So I want you to see that he references water, wealth, gold, white garments, eye salve, all that would have been totally understandable to them. And then they heard this, they would have understood that this is talking about us, our home, our church, our life, our works. This is where we live. And I think that is very encouraging but also very terrifying because one the lord knows what i need the lord knows what i know he also knows the falseness in my life he knows the hypocrisy he knows those areas that no one else knows about and he speaks to them and i think the best illustration of this comes from matthew chapter 7. matthew chapter 7 is a familiar passage of scripture he says in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. But don't forget, just because your Bible has a heading there, it's not what Matthew had in there. All right, It would have just continued on. And so, verses 24 through 28 build upon this. Therefore, so because of what he just said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so the church at Laodicea would fit that category, right? They were doing things. They, they had things. They, they could have said, look at what we've done. And the Lord just says, there are going to be people that have done amazing things, but yet don't truly know the Lord. I think that's why it goes back to verses 14 and 15, where he starts off by saying, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness. I am the beginning of creation. Because it's calling them back to who Jesus is. You can preach wonderful sermons. 
You can teach wonderful Sunday school lessons. You can give millions of dollars to the church. You can be here every time the doors are open and still split hell wide open. You must be born again. And that means you have to come to the end of yourself. You have to admit that you are a sinner. Acknowledging that you have broken the law of God. You have sinned against him. Then you must repent. Turn to him. So that is our second point. Discussions, questions. I didn't leave a section for questions and comments. I'm sorry on each of these. It's been a busy, busy week. So I might have had time if I didn't lock myself out of the car today. So throughout church history, every time they would have a group that would get Jesus wrong, they had to come together. It would be a creed or a confession that would reemphasize. Here's here's a summary of what the Bible is talking about. Christ says he is, and it's always a it's always a corrective course. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, literally. Well, I think you're seeing a lot of this in the church that we're seeing in America today, that it has just enough God to think, to make you think it's a church. But if you really begin to look and study, and I won't name some of the groups that, that are out there, that's, you can do that on your own. But yet they they, have, they they talk like Christians. They they look like Christians in some ways. But yet when you get into what they believe about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and, and what does the resurrection mean, that they are just are not there. And just, you know, it's really a very big concern that you and I should be on guard to what we listen to, who we listen to, uh, because everything that is packaged up as church is not the real thing. There was a uh, YouTube I watched recently. It was by Ken Ham. We responded to an Acts two type sermon in Peter because we had we had grounding, we had we had a foundation. And he was most you know, most of the world plus the modern church needs an Acts seventeen type of sermon from Mars Hill where they're they're searching, they really don't have a definition of who God is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why I like he did, did a real good job on it. I mean, uh, it's like for our evangelism go to somebody that needs an Acts 17 message and we give them Acts 2, it falls on deaf ears because they don't have the background to be able to digest. I, see, I think you see a lot of that with Ray Comfort and his witnessing just on the street. Yeah, this, this, this was actually Ken yeah. Hannah was given the but, but Ray Comfort does a lot. He's like, uh, have you ever sold a piece of gun? Yeah. But you're a thief. Right. Well, you know. Starting with the law, yeah. Yeah, and there, it's just like, well, yeah, I've lusted, but not. And there's just such a, I mean, you read Romans chapter 1, and where we're at on that spectrum of, it's very scary. We're, we're, we're going through that first chapter pretty quick. Yes. Yeah. Other thoughts? Third thing, like I said, I'll try to get us out of here quick tonight. The hope is them believing the truth. Believing the truth. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And that word for chasten means discipline. And so that's where people who believe this was written to a group of believers would say, the Lord disciplines his own. He judges the lost. But that word for rebuke is almost the exact opposite as chasten. It can be used for literally judging. And so you get this kind of, what could it be? What could it not be? I'll find out when I get to heaven. Therefore, be zealous or eager and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says the churches. And I want to read to you Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 4 Paul reflecting his heart for the Jewish people. A people who had rejected the Messiah, right, who had stayed with their love for the law and the things of the Old Testament. This is what he wrote. 
Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God, for Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. And so he says that this group had all the knowledge, they had the outward stuff going on, but yet they missed it. They missed who the Messiah is. And right in the middle of this passage here, we see that he talks to them about repenting. And in verse 20, verse 20 is a verse that you will understand this depending on which view you hold. One, we know that this is a verse talking about the fact that the Lord wants fellowship with his church. All right. It is written to a church talking about the church accepting him. And so if you are a person that holds that this is to a group of believers who have gone astray, it's just about fellowship. It's just about fellowship because God wants to be in his church. He wants to be leading his church. He wants them to follow him. If you hold that this chapter is to a group of lost people who are acting saved, then there are two ways you can look at this. And this is not a popular view, but you have to deal with what the verse says, right? It is about fellowship and about reaching the laws. Because, and I've heard it taught in this church, we've talked about it, the main purpose of this verse is about reaching into a church for fellowship. But if this is a lost group of people, fellowship is not the only goal. You have to first be born again. And when this verse is given, I'm just going to give you the Greek verbiage and you can make a decision for yourself. The word here, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, all right? When he starts, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That is a verb that means continuous. The Lord is always trying to work in his church. The Lord is always trying to deal with his people, if you hold to the first view. What it goes on to there, though, is when he begins to speak of the church, all of it is singular. Look there. I will come into him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And so for those of us like myself who believe this is to the church about fellowship, there is no issue in this passage of Scripture. But you also have to acknowledge, though, that when he talks about this, he's not talking plural, he's talking singular. And so I cannot believe for you. I cannot fix the church on my own. And so people will say, well, this can't be about salvation. It can't be about salvation. I agree with you, that's not the main purpose. It is about the Lord wanting to work in his church. But if you wanna study the Greek and the, the verbiage and the, the, the tenses, you have to acknowledge though, that it is all directed to the individual. Now, I don't believe it gives us this picture like you probably were taught in vacation Bible school where the Lord just stands at the door of your heart and knocks and knocks and knocks. I, I, don't, I don't believe that's, that's the purpose here. But I also think that what you view about this passage is where your beliefs are going to be. And like I said, you say, well, it's an easy fix. If you just go by what it says, there's a lot to it. So don't just run around telling everybody, this is how the Lord works, right? He's, he's just waiting for you. He's talking about a church, a group of people, and dealing with them. But yet each church is made up of individuals. And you and I have to make those decisions on our own, whether to let him lead us, guide us, direct us, for him to work in our hearts and lives. And so you just have to be very careful when you open the word of God, you say it has to mean this, it can't mean that, it means this, it doesn't mean that. When it's tricky, the word of God, you, I always thought if I could just learn Hebrew and Greek, I'll answer everybody's questions. The more I study Hebrew and Greek, the more I have questions, all right? And so humility and an understanding that this whole chapter is about the Lord speaking to a group of people where they'll understand it, where they'll know what he's talking about, and then his plea to them is what? I knock. I cannot continuously. It's in ongoing. And I will come into him and dine with him. And that word for dine is a fellowship meal. 
All right, so fellowship in the church. The Lord wants to be at work in his church. He wants to be moving in his church. And then he turns back, though, and says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne and I also overcame and sat down with my father in heaven. So he's promising this eternal life for those who overcome. And we know that those who are truly saved will persevere until the end. And so when I finished this study, I was like, well, I think I have more questions than when I started it. And I spent so much time preparing for things like the rapture and the seals and the scrolls and the trumpets that I went, man, I didn't know. I just thought this was the easiest one, right? The Lord tells me, quit being dumb and get right. But this church, when you really study it, it's, there's a lot there. And there are two schools of thought and questions, thoughts. Yeah, that's how I felt too. I even told Gary when we were going to see Island Hopper today, I was like, boy, I was really struggling. I don't know what to do. And I didn't even get it finished typing out till like four o'clock. I was still writing notes and erasing things and changing things. And, um, but what we see is a great warning. Well, you know, one thing that it doesn't matter for us, whether we're saved or we're being saved, it matters whether are we saved or are Absolutely. Saved? Because this was written to them but for us. Mm -hmm. And each, each one of these seven churches speaks to an area of our life in some manner of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I know that all of you came to the Revelation Bible study looking for the fun stuff, right? Well, I can't promise you it's fun stuff, but all of the Confusing stuff starts next week, all right? <laughs> Chapters 4 through uh, 19. Uh, next week we'll look at chapter 4. Um, we're going to look at, uh, we're just going to jump right in. So, uh, questions? Yes? Yeah. Did you say that God created Jesus? No. Okay. No, that's what the, the people who had twisted this had begun to say, that he was created. But he is not. That's why John says he was God. He was with God. All things were made by him and through him for him. Absolutely. But that is the heresy that entered the church, that he was created, that the Father had made him. Yes, he has always existed. Yes.